I'm Amy Jo Martin. Welcome to the Why Not Now show. You know that thing you've been thinking about doing? Yeah, that one. Why not now? Have you ever actually taken the time to ask yourself, what's stopping me? Let's talk it through. This is your chance to give that idea the attention it deserves and take action. Each episode, I have a chat with a fascinating person from entrepreneurs to athletes, celebrities, my parents, rocket scientists, and all walks of life. We talk through a critical time when they've asked themselves, why not now? We dissect that day or even that moment, step by step. Kate Fagan is on the show today. She's an ESPN sports reporter and author. She recently wrote a book titled, What Made Maddie Run? After I read the book, I asked Kate to come on the show. The book's about a young woman named Madison Holleran. She was a college freshman that appeared to have it all. She was a University of Pennsylvania track athlete, a great student, and she had a ton of friends and family that loved her. Her life appeared to be perfect, according to her Instagram feed. That's why when Maddie's death by suicide shocked everyone around her, Kate dives into Maddie's story and sheds a different light on mental health. We talk through the role social media may have played, along with other factors. Kate helps us understand the struggle of young people suffering from mental illness today. Before we get started, let me fill you in on something that's been a lifesaver. It's called Design Pickle. Get it? You're in a pickle because you need a design, ASAP, but you don't have the time or maybe even the skill to do it yourself. With Design Pickle, you pay a flat rate monthly fee of $370, and you're given a dedicated designer for all of your needs. And the first 14 days are risk-free. You get a full refund if you cancel in the first two weeks. For me, the process has been painless and ego-free. In fact, the Why Not Now posts you're seeing on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and everywhere else were created from my buddies at Design Pickle. I found I was spending so much time resizing images and trying to design things on my own. I didn't have the budget to hire a design firm or an agency, yet it was becoming too expensive for me to budget my own time. I'm now on a first name basis with my designer. She's learned my style and we're in a groove. Why not now listeners get 30% off their first month? You can go to designpickle.com forward slash why not now to redeem the offer. It's a great solution for entrepreneurs. A mentor once said to me, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Do what you're uniquely qualified to do. Design Pickle helps me do just that. Kate, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm excited to speak with you and definitely talk about the recent book that you wrote. Before we get started, can you tell me about a time when you had to ask yourself, why not now? And we'll dissect it. Okay. 
So when I hear the question, why not now, the way my brain works is trying to think of times when I said yes to things that I was afraid of. And I would say that I'm actually really good at saying yes ahead of time to things that I'm afraid of and then just figuring it out. But if you want one particular time, and this is actually pretty recent, I went to the University of Colorado for school and about a year ago, they asked me to be the commencement speaker and I did not actually want to do it nor think that I should do it or think that I was capable of doing it. It just felt like it was a wrong time. And I didn't quite ask myself the question, why not now? But I really tried to analyze what it was about it that I was putting all the roadblocks in front of me. And then I realized that probably the only thing that I was going to have to do was just say yes to it and then figure it out as it came about. And so that's what I ended up doing. So you just, you had a feeling that... The net net was you should do it, but there were there were many kind of uh, it sounds like hesitations and and so you're a say yes type of person and then figure it out as you need to. Uh, it sounds like yeah, I mean that's worked well for me is the saying yes. I remember when I was a couple years ago at ESPN, I was mostly a writer, and then outside the lines actually asked me to like fill in host. And I had to shadow someone the day before and I was shadowing him all day. And then about 10 minutes before air, I was like, how did you feel the first time you ever had to do this? And he just said, terrified, really scared. And then I reminded myself how lucky I was that I was, you know, 42 years old and was still doing things that gave me that feeling that we all once had, you know, before like our first date and before first year of high school and before our first game and all of those things. So I think that really resonated with me about really embracing moments that actually, as you get older, can cause you a kind of nervousness and embracing that as as a gift to be had. And so that was partly also what motivated me to just say yes to doing a, a public speech that is not something that I really love to do or attempt to like seek out opportunities for. I only do them if somebody asks me. I don't like, you know, go around being like, you know, where can I talk and how can I capitalize on this? It's it's really interesting because a lot of the why not now moments that I hear about from guests have to do with someone putting a mechanism in place that doesn't give themselves an out. And so in this case it's it's kind of the yes, it's the agreeing, it sounds like for you, and then figuring it out or letting it kind of transpire as it as it should. But I love that notion that you just shared about it being a gift to have that fear. That that can be flipped into a, a point of gratitude. It's a pretty cool way to to look at it in perspective. Also, um, I have a better why not now if we want to do that again at the end. Okay, sure. No, it's all good. (laughs) Okay. So when I was about 26 or 27, I really, really wanted to cut my hair short again. And I say again, because when I was a little kid and I played baseball growing up, I had gotten my hair cut short when I was in 
like first or second grade. And I got it cut short because I wanted to be like all my teammates. But it was actually a really, once I got it cut short, my mom, my mom's reaction, like she was super upset. And everywhere we went there for the next couple of years, when I was a little kid, everybody would always say, you know, at like the server at a restaurant, they'd be like, oh, do you and your son want to go to the table now? And I, I, I didn't really understand at the time, like how upsetting that should be, but I kind of saw the reactions from the adults with me that like, this was an upsetting thing that shouldn't be happening. And so as I got older, it's like, of course, when you play college basketball, women's college basketball, like you're going to have your hair long because everybody's like desperately trying to, you know, perform like femininity for everybody. So like, nobody's gay here. Like we're all super girly. So like you always had your hair long in women's college basketball. So as I got older, like it started when I was 21, when I was out of college, like I really wanted to cut my hair short again because I thought it better embodied who I was, but I was definitely afraid of the reaction that had really embedded itself inside of me. The, like when I had done it as a little kid, like I was really concerned at, about that anxiety that I, like that would then be my, like my day in and day out was like feeling that every time I went somewhere. Um, and I mean, th- I lived with this for like five years of oh, wow. twice a year being like, I should cut my hair, but not, not now. Like I can't do it now. Like there'll be a time when I feel more secure and I should cut my hair. And then I remember there was a gap ad with Selma Blair and in it, she's kind of kneeling and her hair is really, is pretty short, not crazy short, but pretty short. It's really funky. And I remember seeing that picture and just being like, okay, fuck it. Like, this is exactly what I want my hair to look like. I've never seen a picture that looked exactly like I want it to look like. I'm going to do that cliched thing where I just walk into the hairdresser and I give him that picture and I asked him to cut my hair. And I think I was like 26 when I did that. And how did you feel after? I would love to say that it was just like, I did it. It's done. I'm rocking this haircut. But it was, I, I felt it kind of freedom, but like, I would say overwhelming panic. Um, because even though people tell people say this all the time, it's hair, it'll grow back. Like after anyone gets a haircut, if they've ever had like a bad haircut when they were a kid or it doesn't feel like them, it feels permanent. It feels really permanent right there in the moment. And so it was tough for me. And I still, I knew it was right. And I wasn't going to go back. And since then, I'm 35 now, so I've had my hair short for the last seven or eight years. But every, every single time I go to the hairdresser, I am really timid with the hairdresser. I'll be like, I want it cut, but like not a lot, like cut a little bit and then I'll approve it and then you can cut more <laughs> because I feel like I'm six or seven again. But yeah, like I really do. I can vividly remember when I got my hair cut as a little kid. Like I remember the moment. I remember the car ride. I remember all of it. And I feel that way every time I go into a hairdresser, but, um, so it wasn't freedom and it still isn't freedom because every time I get my haircut now, I get really nervous when I go to like the TSA and the airports, cause they're really bad about misgendering people all the time because they're just programmed through training. I'm assuming to like identify everybody as like sir and ma'am. And they have no time to like actually look at anybody. They're just like, Oh, short hair sneakers. So Um, I still have a lot of panic about it, but it's something that I've never 
I will never grow my hair out long again because I know that I would be doing that for someone else, not for me. What was it about that ad or the moment that you saw Selma Blair in the the Gap ad? Like what? That was your why not now moment. But was it just the right time? How did you so quickly make a decision because of that image? I think it had been like it had been a number of years, right? So, but it was like, what will be? Here's what I think it was: is I had just really started to take my writing seriously because up until about 21, 22, it was like all I did was play basketball, though I had this like outside hope and belief that I would morph into a writer. And then I worked in newspapers for a little while, but like I didn't really understand how to be a good writer. I just was like showing up and happily writing with like no real instruction about how to get better. And I had just started to learn that writing was really about just like showing up and doing it and not so much about like waiting for it to come to you. And I think that's kind of how I had been viewing the haircut was that maybe my mom would come to me and say like, Hey honey, like, I, I don't Like, why would she ever do this? I don't know. Like you, cause I talked to her about it. Like, I think you should get your haircut short again. Um, I think I thought, like someone would like hold my hand and walk me to the hairdresser. Mm-hmm. There would be some perfect scenario or situation that would just kind of appear and then the time would be right. <laughs> exactly. And like, and then I realized like, that's not really, Oh, maybe occasionally that's how life works, but that's not really how life works. It's like, you kind of have to show up and do the hard work and then hopefully inspiration comes And I think I kind of saw the Selma Blair thing and I was learning about writing and I was like, all right, I'm going to combine these two and just like get this done and do it. Very cool. Wow. That's, it's interesting to look back now and try to dissect your subconscious because it's, it's hard to explain sometimes, you know, and, and to dig back in, but that's, that's really interesting actually. And now everyone will will appreciate your short hair even more. Yeah, I mean, they should d- totally check out my Instagram where I'm rocking my short haircut. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Kate. We tackle the most taboo topics on the Why Not Now show. Oftentimes, you're hearing guests share things they've never shared before. In the spirit of things we don't typically talk about, you should know that the Why Not Now show is supported by Poopery. Yep, the original before-you-go toilet spray. It's magic. My friends at Poopery have literally taken the smell out of you-know-what. This pure blend of essential oils stops bathroom odor before it begins. Visit Poopery.com. And Why Not Now listeners get 20% off with code WHYNOTNOW. That's all one word. I'm I'm excited to dive into the book that just came out called What Made... Maddie Run that you wrote uh, after reading it and then reaching out to you. You know, I've been thinking a lot about about the book itself and and just the the topic of depression and social media in our society. To not jump the gun here, can you share a little bit about the book and what made you write about Maddie's story? The reason I was really drawn to Madison Holleran's story was because right from the moment I heard the news about her death, which was the day after, because there was a lot of headlines in the Philadelphia papers because she had gone to the University of Pennsylvania. Right that next day, I saw a lot of overlaps with 
Madison's story and with my own story and not to the extent of the, the mental health side of things, but really almost just the logistical side of things being that I had lived in Philadelphia. And so I knew a lot of the places that she had been during her time there. I had been a runner in high school, though not a highly competitive one, but my sister had been a division one runner at Dartmouth, also an Ivy league school. And I was always fascinated by the personality type and the perfectionism, the kind of type a that I had seen in a lot of the high level runners that were in my sister's circle especially coupled with high-performing academic institutions and how that affected human beings. And then the third thing was that when I played basketball at the University of Colorado, I had desperately tried to quit my freshman year. The transition was so much more difficult than I thought it was going to be, than anybody had articulated to me. And I had, I had taken a few steps that were not in any way down the line of where Maddie ended up going, but were clearly unhealthy steps in an attempt to avoid practices and to rearrange my situation at the University of Colorado. And so I thought, man, this is going to be, this is a really nuanced, layered story. And I feel like I have so many tent poles that would allow me to tell this story well. And so that was the first moment really in the day after reading those headlines where I thought it's not going to be one of those stories I do in the next couple of weeks and you turn around like a quick 800 word story about Madison Holler. And it was really something where I was like, this is going to be a couple of years in the making. And that's even how long it took for us to do our magazine piece initially with ESPNW. But that was really the origin point of my connection with that story. There are so many alignments for you. And I had forgotten that Philadelphia tie after, um, doing a little bit of research on you too, and how much you had covered, uh, that market and, and were a journalist for a long time too, that there were two really big things that I took away from Maddie's story. And one was here we had this, this young woman who on the surface, you know, looked like everything was great. And she's obviously very driven and, and kind of has her whole life kind of set up and set up for her. And, Yet there was this uh, this depression that she was dealing with um, behind the scenes, and there really wasn't one thing. It seems as I as I read through and really started to to think about what you shared, and and you dove deep into so many different aspects of her scenario. There really didn't seem to be one thing that caused her to fall into deep depression. Um, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it just, it, I think as a society, we want to peg that, that problem, right? And then attack it and talk about it. But that's just not the way it always goes. And so that was, I think, a really awesome takeaway to remind people that there, there isn't always just one thing that you can peg and say, okay, that's the problem. Let's find a solution. Yeah. And I think since the book has come out, I actually think that simple fact that there isn't a why or some sort of conclusion has irked some people who read the book because their takeaway perhaps isn't as nuanced as yours, which is maybe the larger point here isn't that there's a why and we might not find the one, you know, catalyst that led to Madison's death. And I think people, we really crave that as a safety mechanism 
as human beings. I mean, it's why our Hollywood movies are so like, who's the bad guy? And then we root against them. Mm-hmm. because it's not great when there's a ton of gray area for our storytelling in a lot of ways, in, unless you're talking about novels and certain other like more highbrow where you really want to get into how complicated things are. But a lot of people have read the book and actually sent me notes saying like, you know, you never like there was no conclusion to this book. And then that kind of misses the point because the point of Madison's story and the point always was, even in the initial discussions with Madison Holleran's family, that we are trying to make a larger point about how these issues of mental health are playing out among all age groups, specifically among young people, and how there very rarely is one catalyst that we can all then go forward and avoid, but that it often is this swirl of variables at play with them that you can't point to one bad guy, you can't point to one moment. And so there is no quick fix. The fix really then becomes more people having to have the conversation and understand how to talk about it, which of course is harder than just saying like, okay, everybody like this, you know, she was on this drug and she was abusing it. And this is the one thing. And if we just all avoid that, will avoid Madison's fate. Like there is no easy out like that when it comes to Madison's story. Exactly. And I thought that that's, you did a great job of not allowing yourself to kind of fall down into one specific rabbit hole. And for listeners, it's important to know Kate was able to go through all of Madison's, you know, text messages and just various communication that gave her insight into uh, Madison's world that otherwise we wouldn't have. And, and the Holleran family, I mean, kudos to them for allowing you to do that because I think that really helped you share the the rawness of the story. And and it is messy, to, you know, to your point of we, we want to peg, we want to find the villain. And it, my second big takeaway from this, and, and I think it's just because the world I operate in and it's been my career in terms of digital media and marketing and social media, is that um, is social media kind of the lighter fluid in in all of this? Is it the gas that's that's thrown on this fire of um, various things that could be causing the depression, or is it you know one of the main causes and and or both? And with social media, I think there's um, I feel like there's a slow build going on and having been in this space for the last decade and and really worked in it day in, day out intimately and and with some very high profile people and seeing the the power and the strength and the pros and the cons. I, I feel like your the the book that you wrote is, you know, it transcends even just the A type personality and driven collegiate athlete that Maddie was and it really impacts all of us if we take a step back and look at that um, notion of the inside not matching the outside and and the fuel that social media gives that that whole scenario. So um, imagine, you know, fast forward five years and this in a way is, it's really gotten out of control in my opinion and I don't know what the answers are, but it's um, definitely been on my mind and you touched very well on the aspect that social played into Madison's story and Thank you for all the research that you did as well. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I'm actually curious to hear as someone who's been involved so intimately, as you said, with social media, 
what has been your takeaway, not just from the book, but over like the last year or two, as more studies have come out about some of the mental health implications for young people about the amount of time they're spending on Snapchat. And some of it is screen time independent of social media, but a lot of it is like Instagram, Snapchat. What, what have been your takeaways about why we've gone that direction? Was it inevitable? Do you feel like you have any understanding of how to course correct? I mean, cause I'm very far down the path of, I need a break from social media altogether. I need to like downgrade from a smartphone for a little while just to kind of get my brain back to functioning Mm -hmm. and firing in a creative way instead of being so dependent on filling idle time with distraction mechanisms of seeing what other people are doing. But I'm curious kind of where you are in that. It's um, (laughs) it's kind of a a bit of a tornado in my mind. I mean, some of the things that have really become apparent to me are, um, this, this notion that we're all fatigued by it. So many people, you talk about a digital detox and everybody says me too. I want to, I want to go on a cleanse from social. And I actually just recently did, but, but at the same time we're addicted. So it's that combination and powerful, you know, juxtaposition of being so fatigued and also addicted. Um, and I, I start to look at, you know, the chemicals in our, our brains. We look at digital natives like like Madison. Uh, she knew nothing else. I mean, that was her world. And in, in, in high school, there was Facebook. And growing up, and Snapchat is was second nature. It's, it's just a part of their world. But what we have now are we have kids, you know, children learning to use technology before they learn to talk. And what that does to our development of our interpersonal skills is really, I believe, where it's it's starting and the way we communicate. So even if we remove this phrase called social media, how we communicate's changed. And so that is impacting our serotonin exchange too. Um, and you touched on this in the book and I thought it was great, you know, talking about college kids or just anyone who texts versus talks to someone on the phone and in the inner workings of our body and physiologically that's impacting more, more than we realize. So I think about like our physical state and, um, take, you know, the emotions or feelings and feelings are one thing, but also, you know, our literally how our body is functioning is changing. So that's, that's pretty powerful. Um, and then just this notion, especially with young women, uh, but really it's everyone, that we're showing our highlight reels instead of our real life. And the comparison, uh, so I can't remember who said this, but the, someone once said, comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's so true. You know, we find ourselves comparing our lives and what we're doing all day, every day to something that isn't realistic. And that's, uh, it's a slippery slope as well. It's something that I, you know, I struggle with because I don't, other than more research, I don't even know where you would start because this train has left the station, right? We are, we are definitely going hundred miles an hour. Yeah. And I, I, when I look back at human history, even when we find out perhaps things are 
detrimental to our health in certain ways? Like when has that ever stopped human beings from partaking? You know, Mm -hmm. it's not if more research were like even, you know, the book, the new book that came out a couple weeks ago, iGen, who I quoted in my book, I mean, all of the research showing that the use of smartphones is decreasing young people's percentage or who are having sex in high school, who are getting their driver's license, that things that we usually equate with freedom, this next generation is doing less. And not because like, oh, oh, now we have a new safer generation, but simply because they are mostly like lying in their beds on their phones as their form of like socializing with other humans. But like even regardless of if we know this information, no point in human history do we ever stop doing things just because we think it's unhealthy. Like that's not going to be a determining factor for a lot of people about what, why they do things. They we're going to do things because it's pleasurable in the moment and social media certainly is. And because there's a lot of positive effects of social media, in addition to some of the drawbacks that we're seeing. And again, I'm not speaking just about social media. I'm also speaking about like screen time in general. And so, and for me, another like key point, and this is, could be because like Twitter is more of a, a medium that I use than like Snapchat, but the one, and I use this quote in the book and I, I think about it all the time. Like even we now know more about the world than we ever have before. And we know intimately about everything going on in every corner of the world in a way we didn't have We know the thoughts of other people, at least the way they express them in whatever medium it is, in a way we never have before. And yet our own ability to influence the outcome of world events, of corners of the world, of other people's thinking remains the same as really as it always has. I mean, certainly there's, you could say, some indication that because we all have our megaphone now that we can connect with people in a way that we haven't before and perhaps like influence people. But I think as we're seeing now, social media as a tool, especially on Twitter to like truly have dialogue is, is diminishing. And yet our ability to know and absorb like the outrage of what other people thinking or the horrors of the world seems to have no bound. And that like lack of balance for me, especially when it comes to on Twitter is something I'm trying to reconcile with. Like, do I need to know all of this? I don't want to be a, you know, a shallow human being who's like living under a rock, but like how much of this do I need to know? Or how much of this is like an addictive quality of like, well, I, I have to, I have to know more and more when really like my ability to like exert any influence over that remains static. Mm-hmm. How much of this do you need to be exposed to, especially when you have no, in, if you don't have any influence? Um, I, well, one thought I had as I, as I think about, you know, what would change this? What are your thoughts around whether or not celebrity influence and and even just trendiness, if it became more trendy not to be on your phone as much, not to be on social as much, or what is acceptable or isn't on social, do you think that would impact, you know, the forces of just of, of influence and celebrity? That's really interesting because Catherine, my partner and I, Catherine Beauty, we were watching The Young Pope a couple months ago, um, the HBO show. I don't know if you watched it. And in, in The Young Pope, the Pope, played by Jude Law, 
he never gets on Twitter, doesn't allow the Vatican and their PR team to do any social media for him. And his whole play and all of that was that it would like drive up this curiosity of like, what is the Pope on to, right? Like, why is he doing things differently? He's going off of all these mediums. He doesn't see them as worthwhile. People are more interested. And also it cuts out just the headache of social media. And so I said to Catherine while we're watching it, I was like, see, like if we, if I got, not that, not if I got off Twitter, like maybe that's what would happen is like, I could, like there, it would be like the front of a movement, not me personally, but like this concept of like getting off Twitter, getting off social media is like now being a statement. And Catherine said to me, she's like, but you're not the Pope. Right. So it's like, I, I probably couldn't do that as a form of like curiosity and as a form of like, oh, I'm going to like go into the wild of the non-social media. So I guess my concern would be that celebrities could do it because they're not going to lose any money from their bottom dollar. In fact, it would probably be seen as like even more intriguing to everybody. Just like when Taylor Swift recently wiped her Twitter and her Instagram, like if she had gone off those completely and it wasn't simply to launch her new album, Mm -hmm. I think people still would have been fascinated by that in its own way. But I don't know that everyone else would have the accessibility of that option because for people who don't use it for their livelihood, it would still be like, well, okay, I guess I'm getting off Twitter and that's fine, but nobody's really going to notice. For people who do, you don't have the social capital of a celebrity. So I feel like we're kind of caught there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's my whole big wide story on that. No, it's it's interesting. I totally see your point. It's It's apples to oranges as far as the celebrity doing something versus just the, you know, all of society. I wonder though, even if it were a a set of new ground rules, you know, that enough high profile, very powerful influencers took on celebrities, athletes, whatever, that almost set some new rules, like unspoken, unofficial. It, it's maybe it's a dream of mine, but uh, oh, I, I'm. I want to dream the same dream as you. Okay. Well, I, I think it, each platform is different in how they're regulated and and their willingness to um, deal with with hate and spam and trolls. But like even Kevin, the the co-founder and CEO of Instagram, recently there was this this great Wired article about him vowing that he would help make the internet. Uh, clean again or, or clean it up. And if we have the heads of these platforms also on board, um, I think that you're, you're tackling it from, from both angles then. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to see what's happening. It's like the biggest social experiment we've ever been a part of um, because it's so powerful and, and it can help. We've seen that in Houston with, with all of the disaster with Hurricane Harvey it can save lives. You know, these platforms can help so much, but they're also unfortunately swaying so much more negative lately. Uh, have you ever listened to Tristan Harris? He's like an ethicist, like a, a Google ethicist. No. He used to work at Google and he talks about like the ethics of online programming. Yeah. He was on the Sam Harris podcast, waking up. I don't know. I hate to promote another podcast while I'm on your podcast, but <laughs> no worries. There are plenty of them. <laughs> That's right. I have a podcast. Free cookies. Yes. Free cookies. Check it out. <laughs> Kate and Catherine's uh, Tristan talks so smartly about how 
a lot of this might come down to like the big, huge digital players being like Apple and Google. He calls it city planning. Like an Apple's version of city planning is just like how they put their, like formulate their apps, how they, you know, incorporate Apple news to your feed, literally the, the roadmap of your online life as designed by Apple and then as designed by Facebook, as designed by Google. And right now they're set up to basically just hits, whatever gets hits, you get more of. But the problem has been that like base level human instinct, everything that the human being sort of, not everything, but some things that the human being like desires are just sort of base level reactionary. Like, oh, that upset me. I want to click it. I want to send it to people. I'm upset about it. Or like, that's often what drives to the top and all of our algorithms within like the city planning of our online lives are driven by this metric instead of by the metric of like, what did you find interesting? It's never driven by that. So his, his solution, and I don't know how, you know, how we implement this because people don't want to give up any of their time would be if Apple at the end of every week, if you agreed for them on your phone to send you a breakdown of like everything you did on the phone it'd be like, you spent, you know, 42% of your time on Twitter. Are you happy with that? And I would click no. And so maybe Apple redesigns what they show to me. You read these stories. Are you happy with it? No, I'm not happy that I spent 42 minutes on TMZ on Thursday, right? Like, mm-hmm. And so everything gets rearranged in your feed and based not on what's clickbait, but based on like what's quote unquote most nourishing that changes some of it because it's not like any of this in- inherently doesn't do good work for us and doesn't help us. It's just that it's so addictive to our base level human instinct that what I end up consuming is like upsetting, outrage, like Twitter feuds. And I don't want to be doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So some of it could be like a redesigning by the people who design it, but they have to be bought into it. And then it's like, why buy into something when the model is currently so smartly designed to get us our, our human brains to be addicted you know do you want to break that addiction if that's what where the value is right right that's a very interesting concept and my thought of it immediately goes to okay the way the algorithms are set now help generate more activity for advertisers too and I just kind of think of that cyclical revenue model of if we kind of had, let's call it a wellness algorithm, <laughs> a mental wellness that that allows us to pick and choose, like you said, will that suffice on the ad side and on the for the business models of these platforms and huge entities? I don't know. And maybe there's a way then to to take it that much further and and get the advertisers involved. But um, yeah, that's see, that's interesting. Uh, I'm definitely going to check. Th- Check that. Uh, yeah, you that should listen to that episode of Sam Harris with Tristan Harris. So, is there something you've been thinking about doing that now it's time to ask yourself why not now? Yeah, actually, I've been living in New York for about six years, and I was in Philly before that. And you know, Catherine and I have just been talking a lot, like the last six months. Of like, we don't really want to be living here anymore, but we feel really strongly that it's such a capital for the things that we want to do. And we would be kind of like cutting our legs out from under us if we moved. 
So that's the big thing right now. And we're kind of, we're, we're, we're like, we're, we're people who are like, we don't want to be slaves to that thinking, but it's really hard for us to make that decision because we're both so career oriented. So how could we, cause she lives in Charleston, South Carolina and has a house there. Like, how could we leave New York where, you know, we could book a podcast anytime and like swoop into the studio and do it. And like, if there was something we got requested, like take care of and just hop the subway and be somewhere like Charleston where there's a great food scene, but you're like, you're a good plane ride away from where you need to be. Right. Right. So was there, has this been a building kind of question or did something specifically make you take this thought and consider it a little more seriously? It was really a question of us having goals independently that we wanted to achieve. And then even if we hit them, not really taking enough satisfaction in it and really having noticing that the balance of what made us happy was way too far skewed on the side of variables that we had no control over, as opposed to if a lot of my happiness was fueled from, and I always use this example because I love my dad, like he takes just great pleasure every day in like three things, like getting up a cup of coffee in the morning, listening to WFAN, which is a sports radio station in New York. Sorry, there's four things. Doing the crossword puzzle and like going for a walk in the afternoon and like looking at birds. In none of those examples, is he reliant really on anyone else except maybe my mom to go for the walk with him and the New York Times to produce a newspaper that day mm-hmm. to, like, to make those things happen? Like That day will be enjoyable for him most of the time, re- regardless of what else happens in the day unless it's something extreme. And I didn't, I didn't, we didn't have a setup like that in our lives. Like So much was dependent day in and day out of all of these factors, like what emails would I get? What would I book? How would my book do? What is my Twitter response to the ESPN show I did instead of anything I controlled? And while Mm -hmm. it certainly isn't New York's fault, I think anybody who's been to New York or lived in New York can understand how it would fuel like a career mentality and it would make it somewhat harder to like put these pillars in place in your life where you feel like you have some kind of rhythm that you can fulfill every day and be a part of that doesn't rely on outside validation. And so for us, that was kind of the tipping point where we're like, we might need to li- leave New York to gain some of our like peace of mind and sanity back. Mm, interesting. Wow. What a, what an interesting, uh, just thought process and, and analysis of two, what brings you joy. And so where are you in the process of, of deciding and how do you tackle a decision like this? Is it, uh, is there a system that you use or what's I mean, next? I think we're, we're both kind of people where like once things get talked about out loud and you verbalize what the option could be being like, you know, Catherine still owns the house in Charleston. When we go down there, we feel more relaxed and in touch with like the next iteration of who we want to be as people, which is maybe taking it down a little bit in terms of all validation being career oriented. Once we start talking about those things, like the outcome of us moving becomes inevitable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, and it, it manifests. Not, 
type yeah, thing. Yeah, I'm kind of one of those people, like, once I say it out loud, it's not the first time. It's probably the very fact I said it out loud means, like, it's been perfectly digested in my mind for a very long time, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think Catherine can be very similar in that way. So, you know, we've got a lot we have to do in New York over the next few months, but, you know, after that... Next time we do this podcast, we might, it'll be like a more long distance. Wait, where are you based out of? L.A.? I'm in South Dakota. It's actually ironic that you're <laughs> – I live in the forest. I'm the opposite. I'm kind of in the opposite side of what – I went from big urban and I'm on the – I'm in the Charleston version of but, – but even more rural. <laughs> yeah, you went for like the ranch in Wyoming version of our – I totally <laughs> or the, did. Or the ranch in South Dakota, I guess I should say. And I'm actually from Wyoming. But yes, that's – and there are times where I feel a little too isolated. So it's that whole the grass is always greener. But um, options are nice. So maybe it's it's having a pl- – you know, keeping places in both and yeah, who knows. Then you got your travel. Um well, a couple of rapid fire questions real quick and, and we'll, we'll wrap up. So what keeps you up at night? Actually, for the longest time, it was a really deep concern of the last two years that I had done something wrong in the telling of Madison Holler and story. I don't have like a specific, you know, fear or concern that jumps back in my life time and time again that keeps me up at night, it usually tends to be a concern that's topical to what I'm doing right then. And so that's the one for me that has been really haunting in a lot of ways is one, a concern before showing the manuscript to her parents that I had like miscalculated on something having to do with Madison to that because writing about suicide talking about suicide is always a tricky endeavor because there's it's such an evolving field suicide ethicists of understanding how to talk about how to write about it I just worried that I had overlooked something about a phrase I'd used a way I had depicted a certain scene of Madison's life that maybe I had a blind spot for that scene and it was callous or romanticizing suicide in some way. So I had a lot of trouble over the last two years. I mean, I'm a very good sleeper, so I wouldn't be up all night, but as I was falling asleep, a lot of times I would just have a lot of anxiety that I was missing something, that I had a blind spot for this book and that, that it would, that I, that I made a big mistake, not overall in the book, right? Not the book itself, but like somewhere within it that I would have been exposed for something that I had done wrong. And that was really troubling for a while. I can imagine. I mean, a lot of pressure, but also, like you said, the topic being so tricky. Um, Yeah, well, you did a great job, in my opinion. And I hope everybody definitely picks up a copy, What Made Maddie Run. Um, And next question, pirates or ninjas? Who's tougher? Ninjas are tougher. Ninjas are definitely tougher, mostly because I love Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as a kid. <laughs> there you and go. So um, I don't know how often you get that answer or how often you ask that question. But I have never had that answer, and I ask it often. So oh yeah. So my like my moral allegiance to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles dates back to pre adolescence, and so therefore being a massive Michelangelo fan. <laughs> The answer would be ninjas. There you go. All right. Fair enough. And what advice would you give to your younger self, especially in that age that Maddie was at as she was entering into college? 
the big thing is not feeling like you have to be super strong and have all the answers because now all of a sudden you've told yourself and people, society has designated you like an adult, right? I think I really fell into that category when I started college, even though I was struggling, I wasn't as happy as I thought I should be. It wasn't the college experience I thought I should be having, but I almost felt incapable like of admitting that I was struggling to the people around me because that was, it was supposed to be like, aren't I an adult now? Aren't I strong now? Like I'm out on my own for the first time. How, how could I possibly then like raise my hand and say, actually in my mind, like I'm, I'm weak and I'm struggling, even though like, as we all get older, I think we all realize that that's almost the defining characteristic of being strong is like leaning on others when you need to. But I think that's really hard when you're just coming of age and you have somewhat of a warped sense of like what, what adulthood really means and how you should embody it in the world. Oh, that's, that's good. That's very interesting. And it's, yeah, there isn't some sort of formal break of you're this now you're that, but at the same time, we kind of do that to ourselves and and society does it too. Um, wow. That's good. Well, thank you so much for joining me and, um, and I'll make sure to include a link to the book on the site and on the episode page. And um, I wish you the best. Thanks, Amy Jo. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. Hit me up on social media to let me know what you think. I'm at Amy Jo Martin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I want to hear your why not now moments so I can share them on the show. Just send me a note to why not now at amyjomartin.com. For show notes and other offers, you can visit amyjomartin.com forward slash why not now. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my email newsletter for exclusive content and announcements. A big thanks to Rock Salt Music for all of the tunes by the talented John Coggins. And of course, a hat tip to Richard Gruer for editing and producing the show. I'll see you next time. And until then, why not now? <laughs>